0: In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Harry. Uh, have a seat, y'all. Merry Christmas, church. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma. It has already been such a joy and a privilege to worship with you all this morning. It is a beautiful thing to see God's Spirit work. And so many different people. And we have already heard God speaking through his people this morning. Through Sister Jess and Tamise and through Harry. That's beautiful. And as one of your pastors, it's my responsibility not to be... The the sole voice of of teaching or the only person communicating God's word. That's nothing that that I'm interested in being. That's not what Pastor Bobby or Pastor Andrew are interested in being. But we are here to help shepherd and to help ensure that sound truth is being taught by all of God's people. Amen? And so those of you that are used to what happens when I preach, because I don't preach every week here, when I do, there's almost always somebody talking with me. And that's largely because I want to illustrate to all of you the importance of God's Spirit speaking, empowering, and gifting different members of the body with different experiences and different voices and different gifts. And so this morning, as we share a story of two men on a road, uh, I'm going to have my brother Montez Rally come up. Uh, Tez, you can have a seat for right now. Tez'll, Tez will uh, speak to you all in a little bit. It has been such a joy this week to prepare and to study God's word together with Tez. He is a young man who I love very deeply. I have come to respect. I have come to see the way in which God is forming him, even at still a very young age, and I see the Lord's hand upon his life. So for me, it's just an honor and a privilege to be able to teach with you this morning, brother. So I'm excited to hear what uh, the Lord shares through you, and I'm excited to share with all of you as we talk about an Advent message this Christmas season. An Advent means coming or arrival, and it applies a journey. And so many of our Christmas stories are about journeys, right? The journey uh, of Mary to to visit her cousin Elizabeth. The journey of Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. The journey of the wise men to come and see our king. The journey of Mary and Joseph and Jesus to flee Israel, to escape to another country. And so these journey stories, these traveling stories are deep apart Of our experience of this Christmas season. But this morning, we're gonna tell a little bit of a different journey story, a different traveler than the one we usually think of. Uh, This man is not on a lowly donkey, and he's not a wise man on a camel, but rather he is an elevated and rich man seated high on a chariot. And if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 8, verse 26, and we're gonna look at page 534 in uh, your pew bibles if you have one Uh, by the way while everybody's looking that up if you don't have a bible at home please take that with you that is our gift to you Uh, we would love for you to have that so acts chapter 8 we can start in verse 26 again that's page 534 let me tell you this story this this journey story now an angel of the lord said to philip rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from jerusalem to gaza this is a desert place Okay, so already we've got a road set out in a dry desert, and it says, and he went, and he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, let's hold on just a second. Let's unpack who this gentleman is. This is a powerful man. This is an educated man. This is is a official of the king in charge of all the finances of Ethiopia. This is a man to be reckoned with. And we know that he is educated and we know that he is wise because in verse 28 it says, and he was returning, returning, seated in the chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah and the the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. The fact that this man had a copy of the word of God already tells you something about his position. Because these were not, we didn't have, they didn't have pew Bibles, right? Like they didn't have scrolls. So this was a man who had invested a considerable sum of money in obtaining a copy of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And the fact that he was reading it on a journey That he had gone to Jerusalem at all to worship tells you something about the seriousness with which he was approaching God. This man on this chariot was a sharp contradiction for people in Jerusalem because he was at the same time African and powerful and educated and a worshiper of the one true God. Also, he was a foreigner and he was a eunuch. A eunuch was someone who had been castrated. And according to the rules of, of uh, the, the temple, he would not have been allowed to enter the courts, both as a foreigner and as a eunuch. So he was simultaneously powerful and wise, but also an outsider. Also someone who was prevented from worshiping God fully as he wanted to. Someone who had invested a large sum of money in obtaining copies of the word. But yet still, outside of what he thought was God's plan for him, he was a contradiction like so many things. And the Spirit of God had sent Philip to him because he was puzzling over a passage. And the verse that he was reading that he couldn't understand, he said in verse 32, now the passage of Scripture he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before his shearer is silent. He, so he opens not his mouth. and his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? This is an incredibly astute question. And in fact, it's the same question that Tez texted me like last week. He's just like, now who are we talking about in this chapter? because The reason why he was asking this question was because he was reading from Isaiah 53. And that's actually going to be our text this morning. We're going to turn over to page 356 in just a couple of moments. And he was reading these, these chapters in Isaiah. He was reading this passage of Scripture. And it's really confusing. And he was asking the right question because at that time, this was a mystery that had not yet been revealed And the Lord God saw fit to reveal to him for the first time. See, the book of Isaiah, which we've been reading through and studying together for the last month or so, it has two big divisions. The first half of the book is about God's deliverance of the nation of Judah from the kingdom of Assyria. God showed up. He rescued them. He saved them. The second half of the book of Isaiah is about what happens when God was fed up with them and he sent the nation of Babylon in and he conquered them, burned the city, took everyone to be refugees and migrants and captives in a foreign land, and the hope that God was trying to offer his people who had been chastised and who had been removed from their homes. And so in offering this hope to these exiles in the book of Isaiah, God sets up Isaiah as a stand-in for the people, and he says to Isaiah, he says, you're going to be my servant and you're going to be like a proxy, you're going to be my representative, and I'm going to talk to you as if you were my people. And so throughout the later chapters of Isaiah, there's all this discussion where it's all you and I, and Isaiah's talking to the people, and he's like, this is happening to me, but it's really about what happens to you. But then suddenly, at the end of chapter 52 in Isaiah, someone new is introduced, a servant who's addressed in the third person, this new character. And it says in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, if you want to turn over there, 3.56 is where we're going to hang out the rest of the morning. It says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human Resemblance in his form beyond that of children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations; kings shall shut their mouths. And because of him, for that which was had, had has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understood. And this is crazy, confusing when you read it, because until now it's all Isaiah and the people, Isaiah and the people. Now there's somebody new, this servant, and this astute student of Scripture riding in a chariot in the middle of the desert. His heart is troubled because he reads this and he's like, wait, who's this guy? What is this about? This is something completely new. And that's why he says to Philip, he says, how can I understand this unless somebody guides me? And it's in verse 34 of Acts 8. He says, about whom I ask, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? And he's asking the exact right question. Who is Isaiah talking about? Up until now, it was all about him and Israel And now God has said, no, there's a new hope. There's somebody new coming on the scene. And the scriptures say that from that passage beginning there, Philip unfolded for this powerful Ethiopian the entire good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what we are going to do this morning. We are going to unpack, just like Philip did with that man sitting in that chariot. He says he, he, they, they, they walked along together and they reasoned together. And Philip explains to him, starting with that very passage that he read, all of the good news. And his inability to understand it is, is explainable because in Isaiah 53, verse 1, we'll turn over there, 356 again. Isaiah 53, verse 1, it starts out, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, Isaiah starts out this chapter saying, nobody knows what is about to happen. Who's even seen it yet? Who has seen the mighty arm of the Lord? Who has it been revealed to? And the answer was nobody. Nobody knew this incredible thing that God was going to do. And Isaiah begins to lay out, something that was gonna happen for him 500 years into the future and parts of it even further out into the future because it was a mystery and it was a secret. And this is the thing that we have to understand about God's deliverance. It was hidden for many years. God's deliverance was hidden and no one knew that this journey of Advent was going to lead to the cross. They didn't know it yet. They hadn't seen it yet. And that Ethiopian eunuch sat there and said, how can I understand this? unless someone reveals it to me.
1: Thank you. So our first point starts off by being real, and it says that God's deliverance wasn't going to be flashy. Um, If you read verse 2 with me, it says, and I'm reading from the NLT, I believe. It says, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract him, attract us to him. See, I wonder why Isaiah used the word tender shoot. He could use mighty oak tree or flourishing olive tree or anything. But he used something that was, you know, just kind of weird because he he wanted to communicate that Jesus wasn't going to come down in style. He wasn't going to come down and overthrow the government like they thought that the Jewish people thought he would. Instead, he came down, you know, um, humble and humility. And he was communicating here three things. Not only the humanity of Jesus from the line of David, as we learn in Isaiah 11, verse 1, as Pastor Bobby talked about last week. But he also was communicating the circumstances in which he was also born in and his appearance. See, you're walking in the desert, the driest place. Just think about the driest place possible on earth. And you walk past a shrub, a little bitty shrub. There's no water anywhere. And you walk past a shrub. It's, it's ugly because it has no water. And you think, man, like that's not going to survive. What, what condition is this in? This is not going to survive. There's no way this plant is going to flourish. And being born... In the time that Jesus was born in, where the line of David had been cut off from majesty, they're now peasants. The Roman government are oppressing them, and the king, Herod, was trying to already kill him, you know, when he was born, so he he had all odds stacked against him. And with all that in mind, you think, like, there's no way possible for the Messiah to be produced from those circumstances. All odds are against him. But see... What God was communicating with us here is what may seem impossible to man is not impossible for God. So God was not only communicating that, but he was trying to say, hey, look, it's not through Jesus' circumstances or his good looks or anything that's going to get him to exaltation. It's through me working in every single event that happens that's going to be there. So God was communicating, I am sovereign over all of this. See, when, when, when we think something may happen, when we desire something, we think it has to go this certain way. But God was like, no, just look. Just like though there was no beauty in the little starving shoot out of dry ground, there is no beauty in God. It says there is nothing beautiful or special about his physical appearance. See, he didn't have the, the chiseled jawbone of a king. He didn't have the busting biceps or triceps of a king. He was communicating his glory is not going to come from his appearance and his good looks, but from me. And for me working through every situation, I was reading John Oswald. He wrote a book on Isaiah and he says, deliverers are all are dominating, forceful, attractive people who, by their personal magnetism, draw people to themselves and convince people to do what they want them to do. People who refuse to follow that leadership frequently find themselves crushed and tossed aside. This man did not fit that picture at all. See, Jesus didn't have the birth of a king. He didn't have a grand introduction. He didn't step in like, yeah, I'm here. No, he had a very humiliating birth, a very low birth in a stable. And and, and from a peasant to a king, many people were thinking, like, how is that supposed to happen? But God is still saying, look, what may be impossible to you is possible to me. I want to put emphasis on that because that is very important. And because of that, he was often despised and rejected, as verse 3 says a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. We we read that in our liturgy today. See, people rejected Jesus and they despised him. The the language used here is, is very important. Despised means he was considered worthless. Not worthy of even being looked at. See, people would have considered the servant to be of no benefit to him. They would have looked at him and turned their backs on him because they assumed he was cursed by God. Why? Because he carried so much grief. No one would look at him for leadership, nor strength, nor anything to benefit him. Instead, they would turn their backs on him. See, to give a better picture of this, you're walking downtown, and oftentimes you see how the homeless are treated. It's sad that they're treated that way, but that's often how the homeless are treated. They are rejected. Before they get a word out, no, nah, no, nah, I'm good, homeboy. I'm 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 cool. I don't I don't want to do nothing because they're not proof, they're not, they're not considered worthwhile. They're not considered people's monies nor time. And, and that's a sad reality, but oftentimes they're also told discussing things. One look at a homeless person, the first thing that pops in some people's mind is that's gonna be the CEO one day. Nobody looked at Jesus and said, Yep, that's surely the Messiah.
0: So put yourself, put yourself in that chariot. Think about how that Ethiopian eunuch feels. He is a man that in his home country is respected. He's a man with power. He is a man in charge of the entire purse. And he goes to Jerusalem to worship God. And you can imagine what his experience was like there. There he is a foreigner in a nation that despises foreigners. He is a eunuch trying to worship a God who said the eunuch's cannot ever come into my temple. And he hears what Philip says about the Messiah, about the servant. Oh, this is not someone that people were gonna look at and instantly say, oh yeah, that guy. This is someone who was despised and rejected. Can you feel it? Can you feel it in your heart? What that eunuch must have been feeling? The brightness that must have come upon him when he realized, oh, God sent someone like me. God sent someone who experienced what I experienced, someone who experienced the rejection of the people in Jerusalem. You can almost feel the excitement start to build up in this man as he realizes that God's path to deliverance has been hidden. And God's path to deliverance is not flashy and attractive. The part that he doesn't know yet is that God's path to deliverance is going to lead to the cross. Read with me, if you will, verses 4 through 7 of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before his shearers is silent. So he opened not its mouth. This is that passage that caused him so many problems, right? This is the thing that he read to Philip. He's like, I got into this, and I want to know who this servant is, and I can't even figure out who the prophet is talking about. And the original hearers of this, they would have felt it. Back when Isaiah originally wrote this, and he wrote this to exiles, to refugees, to people whose home had been burned and had been shipped off to a foreign land, We're looking to find some kind of home, some kind of hope, something to hold on to. When Isaiah wrote this, those people would have known that their home had been burnt because of the sins of their forefathers, maybe some of even their own sins. And they would have felt shame and guilt as a people, their identity, the thing they would have hung their hat on, the great city of Jerusalem in ashes Their temple destroyed. Their walls broken down. Their family home and lands taken from them. And they would have heard this. And they would have heard about a servant who was coming to have all of that laid on him. Because they had plenty of iniquity. And they had plenty of pain. Their griefs and their sorrows. And as bad as it was for them in that moment, this servant... He had it worse. He was taking on their sin. It was dark, and it was legion. And the scripture said that we are all like sheep, but here was a servant who became a lamb. And this would have meant something very deep, both to the original hearers, but also to that man in that chariot Sin has to have a price. It just does. And we live in a day where oftentimes people want to just excuse things and not talk about you know, the, deep, the deep sin and consequences. At the same time, we cry out for justice. If we want justice, if we want a land in which people are treated fairly and rightly, then sin has to have consequences because people are going to hurt each other. And if there's no consequence for that, if there's no justice for that, it doesn't make for a peaceful and tranquil land. It makes for a war-torn and evil land. A society where everything is okay and there's no consequences, that's not utopia, that's hell. God's deliverance has a price. And that price was paid by this servant who said, yes, I recognize that there is evil, and I recognize that there are consequences for it, but I'm not going to condemn every man, woman, and child. I am going to bear it in my own body. I am going to be led like a sheep to the slaughter so that we can have justice, so that we can have freedom, so that we can have restoration, so that the walls can be rebuilt, and so the temple can be rebuilt, so that God can live with us. He did all of that so that we can have justice. The journey of Advent leads to the cross because grace is not cheap at all. It is costly. Amen.
1: Our next point is God's deliverance looked like defeat. Many of us have seen the Avengers movie, right? The New Affinity War. If not, spoiler alert, they die. Um, <laughs> Point Blake, turn into dust, pop. Movie ends. It, it sucks, honestly. And <laughs> much like that, had that ending, this is what we see here. Of course, there's no Thanos or, or anyone like that, but we see the Messiah, the promised servant of the Lord, led. Unjustly condemned to the point of death. Due to the legal system twisted of that day, he was killed unjustly. We we hear about this in the news today, right? Unjust killing. You, 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 do you see how this happened here? Our Messiah, the man that is supposed to be the deliverer, is led to the cross and he dies. See, he was buried like a criminal which implied his wickedness, but buried with the rich to imply his unrighteousness. And even though he was innocent, nobody cared. You see that a lot today too, right? His contemporaries, the people, the people around him, they didn't recognize who he was. They didn't have the revelation that he's the Messiah they're talking about in 53, in Isaiah 53. They didn't recognize that. He died lonely. So the question is asked, why did Jesus die? Pastor Nate already answered it. Many would say, again, he was cursed by God, but no. Because he bared the punishment of Israel's rebellion. The judgment that we deserve. He put, as Pastor uh, Piper says, he, he placed the sworn affidavit. God placed it on his hand and nailed it, folded it up, nailed it in his hand into the cross. This is beautiful, but, but but, why? Because he loved us. Love is so, so deep. Like, I, I want y'all to hear how deeply God loves us. So much so that he said, man, I'm going to come down. I'm not going to do anything, but I'm going to take, take y'all treason, and I'm going to die for it. See, it would appear that the servant of God had tasted defeat. But no, it does not end there.
0: So why is it then that we can celebrate Advent with decorations and lights and gifts? If there was all this injustice and torture of the chosen one, how is it now that we are so happy That the journey of Advent leads to the murder of God's only son. Verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities, and therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured his soul out to death, was numbered with transgressors, transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. When this says that it was God's will to crush him, that word will there really means desire, which is why some versions will translate it good pleasure or good plan this is something that god wanted to do we have to face that we have to sit in that for a second god wanted to do this this was god's desire to crush his only son and so when he did and he crushed him for our sake This ends with him bearing the sin of many, making intercession for transgressors, but also receiving a portion with the many, dividing spoil with the strong, seeing his descendants, because when he suffered for us, he did not stay dead. When they buried him in the tomb, he did not stay there. He rose to victory because God's deliverance ends in victory. Amen? It was hidden. It was not flashy. It meant suffering, but it results in victory. That's what deliverance looks like. In the end is victory. And imagine, imagine that man on that chariot hearing this. Imagine his heart leaping for joy as he realizes that he has now been invited to be part of God's family. That he has been pulled in and no longer excluded. And he looks down and he sees water in the desert. And he says to Philip, what could stop me from being baptized? What could stop me from plunging myself under the water? From being buried in death and being cleansed and identifying myself with this God and this Son and this Spirit that sent you? What could stop me from being baptized? What joy, what incredible, incredible joy. This is why we celebrate an advent that is a journey to the cross, because it is really a journey to glory, both his glory and ultimately our glory. Bring us home, brother. And this is why we take
1: communion. But before we do that, I I, want to give you guys an analogy. I I want you to picture everybody likes CSI, law and order, different things. I personally don't watch it. I think it's kind of boring. But nonetheless, you you have many people like this show because they like seeing the bad guy gets gets what he deserves, right? But imagine it's a courtroom. You have the judge who is God. You're the one being prosecuted. And then you have your attorney, who's Jesus. And God says, you are guilty of all these things. And and, and you can't can't get your way out of it because he has record. Like, he saw you do all of it. So you're you're wrong. You're guilty. I'm guilty. And he says, the sentence is death. Like, do do you feel the sentence of death on our lives before we were even born? It was death. Not a slap on the wrist. No, death. And the handcuffs are placed on your arms. You're being taken to die for what you've done. And on the way, you you hear your you hear your attorney pleading with the judge, no 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 please please don't do please don't do that please don't do that. So what do you have in mind? Hey, how about I die for him? How about I take his place? And on the way to that chair or whatever, you see the chains come off and you see your defendant being carried and being taken to die for what you did. I'm guilty. My past says it all. I am guilty of every single thing I have done. He says, I love you, Ted. He says, I love you so much so that I'm going to risk it all and die for you. That is so much weight right there. And this isn't just a whole, oh, okay, now I can live and still do what I want. to do No, He says, hey, how about you now go tell everybody what I did for you? We have two responses here. Two. If you already believe, why aren't we telling everybody about what Jesus did for us? And if you haven't believed, you should be like the eunuch and say, look, baptize me. I want to join in on this team. I know this is the winning team. I know what it's going to take. I'm going to risk everything. I would even die for this. Baptize me right here, right now. And we can do that freely. Isaiah 55, 1 through 4 says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Don't you see the beauty of this? We owe nothing, but we owe our lives to him. Gratitude, thankfulness. Continue, it says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ears and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant. This covenant never ends. This is the new promise that God gives us when we turn our lives to him. He said, you will not be able to escape this. No one will be able to pluck you out because this is my promise. This is my ring on your finger. And this is for eternity. Eternity. He says, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to people, a leader and a commander for the people. We have that responsibility to go out and share this truth with everybody else. And this is why we take communion. It's a sure reminder of what Christ did for us on the cross. The bread representing his body broken for our sins. The juice representing the blood that was shed for us the blood that makes us white as snow, and we can cry out to this. So before we do communion, I'm going to pray, and we will continue from there. God, my God, eagerly, Lord, earnestly, we seek you. Our souls thirst for you, God. Even if we don't recognize that we can only be satisfied with you, by you, God, our souls thirst for satisfaction. We can only find that in you, Jesus. Our body faints for you. We live in a dry world without water, with nothing that will satisfy us, but we know you would satisfy us, Lord. So, Father God, I pray for those who have sat under this truth, for those who have sat under the message, that you will prick their heart with your truth, that you will invade their minds and their hearts with your truth, God, and you will renew their minds even now, even as we leave. God, if we're not the water that sprouts up the flower, God, I pray that we're the seed that is planted in their hearts. God, help us to follow you in all diligence, God. Jesus' name.